text of scripture is not technically known as a parable. I thought it would be worth our time to address it in the context of Luke 13 from our last week's sermon. So, beloved, before I read from verse 22 through 30, let's ask for the Lord's enlightenment and blessing. Now, blessed God, we come before you in the name of Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. We ask you, Lord, for light. We ask you for your blessing, Lord, as we read this passage, this text of Scripture, as it's preached. Lord, cause your words to be effectual, Lord, to all your elect. Cause this word to be an enlivening, enlightening, Lord, word. Let us heed its warning. Let us, let us heed and conform to its teaching and instruction. Lord, I pray that there would be none here under the sound of my voice, Lord, that would treat lightly this grave warning, Lord, in this text. So come, oh Lord, great power, and move in our midst, and do a saving work in us all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. And then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us. Uh, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south. And we'll recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first who will be last. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I thought it would be perfectly fine and useful for us to spend a, at least one morning addressing this command that Jesus gives to his hearers who present to him a very odd question. And it's related to the fig tree that we looked at last week. 
that fig tree, though I made a very personal application of it in your hearing last Lord's Day, there is, it is also stands as a symbol of the nation of Israel. I believe I mentioned that. And it is that Jesus is still here being very pointed and deliberate in calling this, his, this people, his people, calling the Israelites to repentance, to faith, to enter into the kingdom. This text of scripture, I think, rightly impresses upon us the need we have to make our salvation a priority in our lives. The title that you have in the bulletin is my fault. It's stated poorly. It should read, your salvation is your priority. Your salvation is your priority. And this text of scripture sets that doctrine before us. Now that we have all kinds of duties, And there are all kinds of priorities. But your salvation is superior to everything else. There is no other obligation and responsibility that should ever usurp your seeking the kingdom of heaven. To enter into it. And to be fruitful and useful. And of course, Jesus here explains not only what the command is, we can break this text up into two parts, the command, that is simple, strive, that's the command, strive to do what? Strive to enter into the narrow door or the straight gate, that's the command. And then the other part of our text states reasons why we should heed this commandment. It's very simple. It's plain, and it's not difficult, and I'm glad for that, and I hope you are too. It really does impress upon us that the things concerning our salvation are made simple and plain in Scripture. That's why even our confession of faith says that the things concerning our salvation is stated in such a way, I'm paraphrasing, stated so clearly and so simply, even the youngest of minds can grasp and understand it. And I think that'll be the case today. I don't think looking at our congregation, there should be anyone walking away wondering what they need to do as it relates to the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the commandment found right there in verse 24. Now, the command that Jesus gives comes from a question that just seems to come out of nowhere. We're not told who asked the question, And neither are we told why the question was asked. 
And it's a rather strange question, I think. He was asked, are there just a few who are being saved? Are there just a few who are being saved? Now, it's possible, and of course, this is nothing more than pastoral speculation and meditation upon the word, but maybe it's, it's, it's come to Christ as this question because of the teaching has been rather difficult for them to, well, accept, and there's grumbling. That's possibility. That person asking the question is noticing that there's well, that Jesus is not very popular as he impresses upon the people their obligations and their duties to exert themselves and be what? Well, according to the fig tree, fruitful. There was something very emphatic about that fruitfulness. If the tree did not produce fruit within the third year, what did our Lord say the owner would do? that he would, what, pluck that tree up. Why? Because the text told us that it's taking up ground. It's, it's taking up precious resources that another tree could be put in its place and bear the fruit of those resources. Here, uh, so, and again, and what does Jesus do after that? Well, he certainly, he's confronted by the legalists. He's confronted because Jesus had compassion upon the poor woman that had been bent over for 18 years. 18 years. She didn't come to him. He saw her and had compassion on her. And of course, after healing her, delivering her from that evil spirit, then he's, he is what? Accused of violating the Sabbath. And Jesus is not gaining friends, is he? Not in this chapter. Now he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's what the text tells us. This question comes out of nowhere and Jesus doesn't answer the question. He, he does what he normally does. He redirects their focus and attention just as he did in the context of the fig tree. And there's our commandment right there in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The word strive comes from the Greek word agonizomai meaning to agonize. That's where we get our English word agonize. It's a present tense verb, meaning that you are to be striving even now under the preaching of the text, that you were to be striving when you got up this morning, when you went to bed last night, that we are to spend our time striving to enter through this narrow door, this narrow opening. Now, what is the, the idea behind strive or agonize? 
Well, it is, this, the, it is the picture of someone who has basically spent all their strength and vitality to accomplish something. And, and the, uh, the, uh, a biblical picture would be an athlete. Now, if you've ever competed in any type of sport, um, well, not all sports are equal, but there are, there are at least training, there's running, there's this idea that there is the expending of all your strength and effort to accomplish the purpose, whether to, to increase your stamina, your skill set, or to just finish the race or to finish the course or the play or whatever the case may be, but it is the exertion to exhaustion. I mean, this word is not implying that somehow you've exerted yourself and you're able to walk away and you have, a, you, 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 you have your voice. I mean, no, you've lost your breath. You, you, can, you can't stand erect. You have to bend over. You have to catch your breath. You basically, your legs are shaking. Your hands are weak. You have exhausted yourself. That's the idea. And that's emphatic. This is Jesus. This is this. It's an emphatic statement. It's the commandment. This is what he is telling us to do. This is what he's telling his listeners to do. That he says, don't worry about how many are going to be saved. You need to strive to enter through the narrow door. So that's the idea. That's the commandment. That you and I that is, to make our salvation our priority, this is what it looks like. And we are to strive for our salvation. We are to exhaust ourselves. Now, in, for what reason or for what purpose? Well, as Jesus says here, to enter through this narrow door or the straight gate. Now, I will have to point out that I did come across some modern translations that were very weak on this point. In fact, um, and it's a translation that I, I use quite often um, just because of the way it phrases some things. But when I got to this text, I was, I was disappointed because it said, do your best. Now, that was the, that's how it translated the Greek word agonizomai. Just do your best. Well, that's completely wrong. That, that is completely wrong, off the mark. Jesus isn't saying, hey, just come on, come, everybody's going to get a trophy. It don't matter. You just do your best. That's not what Jesus is saying. That takes the edge off the text, doesn't it? That removes the force, the implication. It, it, that, that doesn't even fit the context of weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, that's what's at stake. That's why it's so emphatic and so powerful a statement. That's why we are being commanded even now that we are under the listening, under the grace of the preaching of the gospel that you and I ought to be striving to enter through the narrow gate. It's not just do your best. I mean, if you can concentrate, okay, great. If you can't, don't worry about it. 
He loves you anyway. You can't study a text like this or preach a text like this or hear a text like this being preached without recognizing the weakness of the American Christian culture. Whether it be Christian schools, Christian day schools, Christian colleges, I started to say cemeteries, but I meant meant seminaries. I don't know if that was an accident or not. Churches. Because we have to recognize the reality of our culture and environment is to excuse everything. It's to accept even the slightest inkling of an effort as good enough. I read this past week where this lawsuit of this employer was being sued because they had fired someone they hired, and I think in six months they had been late 47 times. And they were being sued for discrimination. But that's the reality of our culture, isn't it? And from what I understand, they won their lawsuit. What have we done to common, ordinary, daily standards, and how has that eroded our religious standards, our moral standards? I mean, here the Lord Jesus is not equivocating at all, is he? There's no other word that you and I can use if we're going to understand the power and the priority of this commandment. We are going to have to use the word agonize. Strive. Exert yourself to exhaustion. There can't be enough strength to get up and walk afterwards. That's the point. And this is what Jesus is saying. What is this narrow door? Well, it's the way of faith. It's the path of true religion. It looks narrow. It's, it's confined. It takes effort to get through it as compared to the world's philosophy and religions. We should never, ever, even in the same breath, speak about Christianity along with other world religions as somehow they are, well, of the same thing. They're not. There is only one salvation, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Lord. There are not many. There's only one true path to the kingdom of heaven. Not many. This passage has been preached, I think, successfully and I know edifying to me as a signpost to the kingdom of heaven. And you can see, you know, when you're going down the road, you miss your turn. You don't get to where you're going. There's no way you can get to the kingdom of God without striving and agonizing. If you're not willing to do it, you're not going to make it. 
If it's not for you, well, it's not for you, but you're not going to, you're not going to somehow be given the kingdom of God on judgment day as a second, third, or fifth prize because it's not the way it works. You're probably feeling a little bit of the pressure, and that's fine. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. That's the purpose of this teaching. This narrow door is is narrow enough that only one person can enter it at a time and, and, and cannot have anything on them but what they have on. I mean, it's a narrow pathway. And this is what Jesus is telling his people. These are, this is the, the, quote, covenant people. They should know better. They should understand these things, but they don't. They have rested in so many other ways of justification and not the real way that they are ignorant, they are stubborn, they are blind, and yes, they've got all kinds of zeal just like this this person that confronted Jesus about healing the woman on the Sabbath, all this piety and zeal. And we see what Paul says in Romans 10, what he says about his countrymen. He says, my brothers, my countrymen, they have a zeal, but it's not according to the true knowledge of God in Christ. Religious zealots do all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons, but none of it is for the right reason and none of it is for a good purpose. The kind of zeal that is acceptable to God is a zeal that begins with that faith generated by the Holy Spirit where we exercise in confessing our allegiance and belief in Jesus Christ, our sins, and that we are his children and subjects and disciples whereby we begin at that moment striving to enter the kingdom of God. It's unmistakable. Many professing Christians. And yes, there is a such thing as weak Christians. But even weak Christians know, know this is what's needed. And this is what they must do. And that's why they weep at night that's why they pray at night that's why they weep in their prayers because they are coming and they're begging the Lord for strength now we do need to address two things two misconceptions that might that you might conceive after listening to what I've said about this word strive the first con- misconception you may have is that am I saying that there is a degree and level of striving that will secure your way to heaven 
That is, if you just agonize enough, you're going to secure heaven for yourself. Is that what I'm saying? No. Not at all. Because that would be works, salvation. Now, beloved, listen to me. We need to understand what it is to strive for the kingdom of heaven by the grace of God for the means of grace and what it is to strive for the kingdom of heaven in our own strength. Those are two different things. We're not talking about a works justification. We're not saying that you're going to go to church every time the doors are open. You're going to pray 10 hours a week minimum. You're going to give so much money out of your paycheck every pay period. You're going to do so many good deeds, just kind of like, um, you know, um, community service. And you're going to strive by those works and you're going to be accepted by those works. That's foolishness. And that is rejected by God. Because there's no way that you or I can ever do enough good deeds to overcome our own sins. Not to mention that all the, everything we touch is tainted by sin. So we're not saying that. And I'm going to address that in a minute. More in a minute. Nor... Am I saying or advocating in any way, well, if you can't do anything to earn your salvation, then we don't do anything. Now, that goes contrary to the word strive, but there is an example in this chapter that I think Luke purposely, divinely gives to us because not only is Jesus addressing, blind zeal and good intentions aren't going to get it. That's not striving. A blind zeal and good intentions are not striving for the kingdom of, he of heaven, okay? It's not. Nor is this passivity because if you look back up in the text and you look at this woman who was laid over and burdened by this demonic spirit in verse 11 it says there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all and when Jesus saw her he called her over and said to her woman you are freed from your sickness now let me ask you something where was she where was this woman look at verse 10 he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Where was this woman? Where, where was this sick woman? Where did Jesus find her? You know where I'm going. In the synagogue. What was she doing there? making use of the means of grace. This woman is bent over. She didn't stay home. 
gets real silent. She was bent over sick. And yet, where is she found? On the Sabbath day. In the synagogue. What is she doing there? Worshiping. And Jesus sees her. Where does Jesus see her? In the congregation. And calls her to himself. Beloved, I think the word strive there gives us this implication. And he's going to prove this in just as he works through the text. The whole idea of striving is the use of the means of grace that God has gifted to his church in order to see the kingdom of God come to fruit in your life. That is, you can't claim I'm entering into the kingdom of God and can be completely separated from the means of grace. You can't do it. You cannot do it. You can't claim to be a child of God and be separated from the means of grace. You can't claim to be a Christian and be separated from these Christian graces. That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, let's look at it. Let's take it another level. Notice what he says. Let's back, skip verse 25. We'll we'll address that in just a moment. Look at verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourself, but yourselves being thrown out. Now why did he use Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, because who's he talking to? He's talking to all of these people that go, well, we're the sons of Abraham. Where, 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 are the, where are the children of Abraham? We're the children of God. We've got the sign of the, of the covenant. But they didn't have the blessing of the covenant. And they, why didn't they have the blessing of the covenant? Because they didn't have faith like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, and like the prophets that God sent to Israel and Judah to do what? Well, to call them out of their sins. And Jesus is noticed in verse 22, he's on the way to Jerusalem. Why? Well, we know because, well, no prophet is killed outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way. It's his last year of ministry. He's going to his crucifixion. He knows that when he goes there, what the results are going to be. And they were notorious. And Jesus had already convinced them later on in the text. He goes, listen, you're the ones that have killed all the prophets. You've killed them all. Why? Because they preached messages you didn't like. You didn't want to hear what they had to say. As they taught you how to strive and enter into the kingdom of heaven, you didn't want to hear it. You wouldn't have none of it, and therefore you stoned them. Look at at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. 
Now, I mean, brothers and sisters, listen, striving is not just simply being okay with doing the normal things. It's an extraordinary exertion. It's an effort. It's purposed. It's a commitment. It's understanding, you know what, that, that I can't lean into my, uh, lean on my own understanding. I've got to acknowledge the Lord. I've got to trust the Lord. And that means, you know what? I need to educate myself. I need to study the Bible. I need to pray about these things. You know, we don't pray for God to show us the way. We pray for God to enlighten and make alive the scriptures to us. Lord, help me understand the word of God. And Lord, then give me the courage to obey it even in the midst of great, great danger. Give me the boldness to speak it. In Hebrews 11, look at verse eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, striving. He didn't have all the answers. And you say, well, that's no big deal, Abraham. I mean, you know, God spoke audibly to him, whatever. I mean, it was not a big deal. It was a big deal. He pulled up his whole family. Here he is as a prince of the Chaldeans. He pulls up his whole family. His wife's leaving more than likely, some brick and mortar place to live to go live in a tent. And she's like, Abraham, where are we going? I don't know yet, but I know we need to go. Ladies, that's not a fun place to be. That's a fact. That's the purpose. What's he doing? He's striving. And it goes on. The text goes on. and even talks about the faith of Sarah in verse 11. Herself received the ability to conceive. What? Even in the, bit, in the midst of her doubting, even though beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Even though she was beyond the ability to conceive and bear a child, what happened? She did. Striving means. Look at verse 13. And all, um, therefore, there was uh, born even to one man and to him as good as dead. Talking about Abraham, as many descendants as the stars of heaven, a number, numerable, saying, all of this, what was he doing as, as Abraham went out around in the land of Canaan? What was he doing? He was striving the whole time. He, he even come, you know, even danger of twice, he, he rested in himself, he lied to Pharaoh. You can go back and read the account right there, I think it's Genesis twenty twenty one, where even Pharaoh was innocent in the matter and God acknowledges his innocence, but he says, listen, you took the wife of a prophet. You need to go, you need to, go to him, give him his wife back, and pray, ask him to pray for you so that you receive the blessing of a prophet. What was Abraham doing? He's striving. All those years, he's striving. To do what? Enter the kingdom of God. How about Look at 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it is said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. What's he doing there? Striving. Working, striving, agonizing to do what? Believe God. Trust God. Follow God. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding the things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. What's this point? The point is they didn't see the fulfillment of these things, and yet what were they, what were they acting toward? By faith, this is going to come to pass. God's promises are going to happen. God is faithful. The same thing in our lives, beloved. God is faithfully working out his promises in his church and we must strive to believe and to trust. We must confess our sins as they rise up and cause us to stumble. In every way, we must wean ourselves constantly off the world and all of the various ideologies and philosophies that would lead us astray or that would even teach us to do what? Don't worry, everybody gets salvation. It's just, well, good intentions is damnable according to this text. Good intentions are not going to cut it. Let's also address another way in which this text motivates us to make our salvation a priority, and that's the timing of it. Look at verse 25. Notice we're to strive to enter through the narrow door, as Jesus says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Now, why will they not be able? Because they are not willing to strive and agonize. That's the point. They seek it in blind zeal or they seek it with good intentions. They don't seek the kingdom of God with an attitude and heart of agonizing for it. That's why they won't find it. And then verse 25, here's another motivation for us to make our salvation a priority, the kingdom of God. He says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, And you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. And then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Now, if you go to any faithful expositor of the text, they all teach this. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. The calling of salvation, the striving to enter the kingdom of God doesn't last forever. There is in this statement this understanding that there are times culturally that the door shuts. What does that look like? Well, if you can't find a church preaching a faithful gospel... How are you going to get saved? 
How are you going to get saved? If you're not going to find a church that preaches the Bible, if you're going to water down the Bible, if you're going to turn it into, well, just do your best. If we're, going to re, if we're going to reword the scriptures to take away its razor's edge, right? If we're, going to, if we're going to dumb it all down to where nobody's offended, how are you going to get saved? Has the door shut? That's why there's a, you know, how many more English versions of the Bible do we need? If, 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 and that's going to be the mentality of the person preaching the gospel from the pulpit saying, listen, whatever it is, don't worry about it because God is compassionate. How, how are you going to get saved? Of course God is compassionate. He's just, you know how God is compassionate? He gave us a commandment to strive. William Perkins says this. He says, God loves us by putting two metaphor hands around us. Those hands being the law and gospel. The law and gospel. The one hand is the commandment and the other hand is the grace and mercy of God. Because as we strive, beloved, we strive in the strength of grace, do we not? We strive in the energy of the Holy Spirit. We strive in the presence and the, the, the working of the Holy Spirit in us to be fruitful. That our striving is not in vain because it's God working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. But there is a limitation. There is a time when the door shuts. And that's, that's one of the I guess, lies that Satan has often been so successful in using in the minds and hearts of young people. I've got forever. No, you don't. No, you don't. I don't know how long you have, but you don't have forever. You don't know how long you have either. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Brothers and sisters, I'm pleading with you. Heed this commandment. Don't put it off. Exhaust yourself. Make sure you come in to the kingdom of heaven with everything you have. Leave. Waste every bit of energy you have on it. So he tells us that there is a, a time. Look, look, this is a biblical idea. Let's go back to the psalm that I read in your hearing this morning. Look at verse 6, Psalm 32, verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Now, this is in the context of David's repentance. 
So we can see that there's a context, right, that when we find ourselves in need of repenting of sin, this particular sin obviously was a big sin. It had affected David, his, his person. It had affected his family. It had affected his kingdom. And what David says is, listen, there was a, look, I, there's a time for God to be found where there's grace. Now, we don't think that way. We often do not think that way. Look at Isaiah 55. See, part of the lie that Satan uses in our lives is that, oh, you got, you got, you got plenty of time. You have plenty of time, don't worry about it. You got all the time in the world, and he maximizes, he highlights God's compassion and mercy, but he uses it in a wicked way. Of course God is compassionate. Of course he's merciful. Of course he's long-suffering. Of course he's patient. But that doesn't mean that there's not a door that shuts. That doesn't mean there's not a door that he will close. Look at Isaiah 55, and this is related to the nation of Israel. And of course, this is, they're going into judgment with Assyria. And what does he say? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, you, you have to think that this nearness is in relationship to the prophet's preaching, right? To the prophet's exhortation to repent. You'd have to connect the two. As long, listen, brothers and sisters, it's been the testimony of many people coming to this church, and it's been the testimony of many that I've met, that, that, that people have told me that churches just don't preach the Bible. Churches don't preach the Bible. Churches, I want to go to a church that opens up the Bible and preaches from it. Well, if they're not preaching the Bible, how are they preaching the gospel? If they're not preaching the gospel, how are they preaching salvation in the kingdom of heaven? How? Jonathan Edwards, um, an American theologian, preached to a church where they had lost two elders in that church. Two of their elders died suddenly. And the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached to that church was judgment is at hand. And you say, well, why? Because he believed this doctrine. And here's what Jonathan Edwards was saying. Why would God, it's not in God's mercy to take away these lights. These lights of salvation to you. God has just removed these two celestial lights and he has just taken them from you and he's taken these preachers of the gospel and there's God's judgment on this place. You see the door shutting. So the door can be national, the door can be personal, the door can, can be as a church. Matthew 25, obviously the parable of the ten virgins, right? They wasted their time and then when it come time for them to act, what had happened? The door was shut. 
I'm going to make this application and then we'll draw this message to a close. It's an, it's, it's, an, it's a very gritty application, but it's one that I think will resonate with you. And looking at the congregation, I wish to impress upon you this warning. I have met people. I have counseled people, had people come to me much later in life that wasted their years. They wasted it on all kinds of stuff, sinful things. Some of it good, but to an extreme. A lot of it sinful. Effect on the mind, effects on the body, and then all of a sudden they want to come. They've exhausted all of their human vitality to this corruption. And then they want to give themselves over to the Lord. And that's, praise the Lord for that, right? But when you try to help them understand the Bible, their minds are gone. The drugs, the alcohol. That there comes a time and a place that even the faculties of the mind don't work right. Can't meditate upon the scriptures can't spend any focused time because of they, they burnt themselves out. Now, am I saying that God can't be merciful to them? No. Brothers and sisters, that's not the point of the, the application or analogy. The point of the application is that why would you waste the vitality of your life on sin? Strive now that with that strength to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you know when, when, when there's doubt, when there's like, oh, I don't understand, and you work with them, and you work with them, and you work with them, and try to get them to understand, and they just don't seem to have the capacity anymore because the best of themselves is gone. And guess what creeps in? Am I even saved? They have to fight the rest of their years just even their, to have assurance. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Do you want to live like that? Is that what you want for yourself? Well, how do I avoid it, Pastor? Strive to enter the narrow gate. Now. Now. And you won't experience the closing of the door. Now, notice what he goes on to say. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth but not if you strive today. Strive today. And you won't be with them where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells us in this promise, he says, and they will come far from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some will first will be last. What he's saying to is the, these, this outward covenant people of God, he says, don't you know that the Gentiles are going to come and they are going to recline at the kingdom of God at God's table? And they're going to rejoice and they're going to strive to enter into the kingdom of God while y'all sit out here with all of the promises, with all the scriptures, with all the prophets and trusting in your own works. 
and you will perish. So brothers and sisters, I implore you this morning, there's only one way. That way is a way of striving. Yes, life can throw you all kinds of challenges. Don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth the kingdom of heaven is worth. The celestial joy is worth your agony. The kingdom of heaven is worth your agony. The eternal presence of God in Christ is worth your agony. Amen? There is nothing for us in this world that we should ever want to switch out for the next. Nothing. May God bless us all to strive for his kingdom. Let's pray. Now, blessed God in heaven, this text of scripture, Lord, is so clear and so powerful, so convicting. And Lord, we confess and we admit that our striving looks pitiful at times. But yet, Lord, we pray for this morning that you would breathe fresh and anew upon us and that we would have a new vitality, a new interest, Lord, a, 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 new, a, a new goal to be striving for the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we do not want to be cast out. We do not want to be seen with the wicked. We don't want to have, oh Lord, to rest in good intentions. We don't want to rest, oh Lord, even in our works. We want to rest in Christ. And we know that striving means, Lord, coming to, to, to the means of grace with a joy, with a gladness, and with the the understanding that you're using all of this, Lord, to bring that heavenly fruit into our lives. Oh, I pray, Lord, that this, this preaching would bear fruit of the kingdom. Lord, as we now get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, may that means of grace as well confirm and affirm and assure and strengthen, oh Lord, even the weakest faith here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, after Jesus